my older daughter wanted to participate in the Greta Thunberg-inspired climate strike that was happening here in our hometown of Bozeman, Montana. And since I've been doing environmental policy and conservation for 20 years, I said, well, sure. You know, I said that to my, young, to, to my older daughter, and my younger daughter wanted to join as well. But I noticed it was supposed to rain. There was supposed to be a huge thunderstorm. And as you probably know, high schoolers have these super heavy backpacks. My daughter also played the trumpet. So I said to her in my like total mom way, you know what? Why don't I pick you up? And I'll drive you to the protest site. <laughs> so that way, right? So you know where this is going. Um, because, you know, it's going to be raining and you're carrying all this stuff. And um, I'm bringing that did not go well at my dinner table. <laughs> so uh, my 14-year-old basically said to me, Mom, it's a walkout. A walkout. And you're going to pick me up. And secondly, you want to drive me to the protest site when... It's all about our addiction to fossil fuels. You know, where where is Generation X? Where are baby boomers? What are you all doing when it comes to the climate crisis? Because you cannot leave this all on our shoulders. That's Heather White talking to me from Montana. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. The anger and fear that Heather saw in her daughters, now 15 and 17, sparked what she describes as a new focus and mission in her work as an environmental advocate. She'd spent nearly 20 years as a lawyer working primarily on policy and advocacy efforts. But that day, she found a new mission, confronting the emergence of something folks call eco-anxiety, Her new book, One Green Thing, details her research, and it's a different kind of manifesto with a mission. She's not making the case that climate change is a problem, but encouraging people of all ages to find a way to see themselves as part of the solution. Why did you decide to write this book? I realized I needed to really dive into the mental health impacts of the climate crisis because young people are really feeling it, including in my home, and create an invitation for more people to feel like they could be part of the climate movement. And so the book is not a policy book or a legal treatise. It is a self-help book for environmental action with the emphasis on eco-anxiety and how young people are feeling. You know, I as you describe that, it's a scene that actually echoes, I'm sure, for listeners of conversations they've had. I know it does for me, that deep, deep sense of resignation that nothing can happen, that no change can happen. There was a survey in September of 2021 of 10,000 young people globally, and one out of four did not want to have children because they're so worried about the climate crisis. One out of four. And so, so many families are having this conversation. And that's one of the big takeaways I have in this book is that if you haven't talked to the young people you love about how they feel about the future we're leaving them, then do that. That's the biggest takeaway because I think for so many people, it's a game changer. What calls you to this work? That's such a great question. And it is 
a spiritual calling, I think. And as you know, Umbreen, I write in the book about going to New Zealand when I was in my early 20s on an exchange for a year and having this moment. Um, it happened to be at a church. I grew up in East Tennessee. All of my kind of formative memories are spending time in the Smoky Mountains with my parents. But when I was in New Zealand, it's when it all kind of came together for me. I did a year abroad at the University of Tago, and in the book, I write about um, backpacking and camping by myself um, for about a 10-day trip. And one of the places I went was Lake Tekapo, which is this gorgeous, amazing lake on the South Island of New Zealand. And it happened to be that I was at a church. There was a church called the Church of the Good Shepherd. I spent some time inside and then stepped outside. I took off my shoes, <laughs> kind of dug my feet into the the earth and um, started just looking at this gorgeous lake. It was it was this like unbelievable turquoise color and just asking myself, you know, what is it that I want to do? And I I felt called to go into environmental law and environmental policy in that moment. What drew you to walk into that church? Like, are you was that your tradition? Was that a practice that you had when you would travel to to wander into houses of worship? You know, I've always been interested in spirituality. My parents are evangelical Christian. Um, I grew up in that faith. I've always felt a sense of calm and peace in any um, house of worship. So it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. <laughs> that was one of the main reasons why I went in. When you sit in the pews, you can see this um, 180 view of this, you know, turquoise aquamarine lake and these snow snow capped mountains uh, behind it. So um, that was the main reason. I think it was just kind of listening to that inner voice. In your book, you are inviting readers to recognize themselves in different profiles. You're not suggesting to a reader there is a one size fits all way of advocating for the environment. Absolutely. The reason that I started diving into these different profiles, this idea of self-exploration when it comes to conservation, who are you when you show up for the people that you love? And I started doing research and thinking about the different types of people that I've worked with in the last 20 plus years. And the sage profile is a person who is spiritually connected to nature. Nature is a place that restores them. They believe in taking care of uh, creation and uh, the the natural world that they believe in. The adventurer is a different type of profile, more of a hands-on learner, a risk taker, someone who's focused on challenging others and challenging themselves. Um, I have like five other different profiles, including the beacon, which is probably the person who's out front with the megaphone. Um, my older daughter, for example, is a beacon. She has a very strong sense of justice and speaking truth to power. And then there's the influencer, which is focused on people and networks and being bringing people together. Then there's the spark. And the spark is kind of the plus one, the person who who's like, sure, I'm in. I'll, I'm happy to go with you to see that documentary, go to that action, learn more and hear more about this particular event. And then there's also the wonk who loves the problem solving and then the philanthropist who's all about giving and providing time and resources. So I thought it was a powerful tool for people to see themselves in this movement. 
You don't have to be everything to all people in the movement that you can use your unique strengths and talents. We need everybody to get involved. You're framing everything in a very positive, action-oriented way. It is, as you describe, I think aptly, a self-help book of sorts. It is intended to combat that sense of being overwhelmed by a problem that feels much larger and un unattainable, unmanageable, unachievable. And there's a lot of doom and gloom in the messaging around where we are and our ability, our capacity to, at this stage, effect change. I think the first thing is that the doom and gloom is based on what we're experiencing right now. And actually the changes that we're seeing are happening a lot faster than, than even the most kind of aggressive scientists expected it's happening at a much faster pace, but to the point of paralyzation, right? Because it's so scary. And once people see kind of what's ahead of us, if we don't make these huge policy and market changes at a global and national level, people become paralyzed. What I say is that these microactions are really important, but not in the way that you think. It's not about the math. It's about the culture shift and that all of us are cultural change agents in our families, in our communities. And when we have a daily practice of sustainability, it's not that you turning down the thermostat when you have you know, a dinner party is going to solve the climate crisis. If you tell a barista at Starbucks you don't want a straw or you don't want the plastic cap, obviously that's not going to solve the plastic pollution crisis, which is linked to climate change. That doesn't do it. But what it does do is send a signal to people about what you value. And so that daily practice is very important, but not because of the carbon dioxide equivalent emissions that you specifically are avoiding. And in fact, this idea of the individual carbon footprint was a tactic by the oil companies to try to shift the blame to consumers and have consumers get really focused on these micro actions. But what I say in the book is that the math actually does add up in congreg like in in congregate like as a collective it does make a difference but it's not about your individual carbon footprint as much as you viewing yourself as a cultural change agent and and it also it's very important I'm bringing that people understand this it can also reduce your eco anxiety when you're controlling what you can control can you just define eco anxiety the term eco-anxiety was actually only defined by the Oxford English Dictionary last year in 2021. Um, the American Psychological Association has been seeing this connection between anxiety, like clinical anxiety, and the climate crisis. And they have defined eco-anxiety as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And more and more psychologists and psychiatrists are seeing this with Generation Z especially, that their anxiety is manifesting in this concern about the future. And in the book, I talk about kind of three big factors. I call it the eco-anxiety trifecta that makes a difference uh, for Generation Z. The first is the hyper-awareness of all of these issues on social media. I mean, when we see our kids on TikTok and we see them on Instagram, I think a lot of us assume that it's all about who went to what party and what celebrities doing what, but it's it's not so much about Hollywood gossip and teen drama as it is live footage from the war in Ukraine, um, wildfires uh, across the West, heat waves as they're going back to school. They feel the pain 
They're a hyper-awareness of the pain in the world. Um, the second is generalized anxiety. This generation ha- has a lot more um, anxiety, in part because they're comfortable talking about mental health in a way that maybe we didn't growing up. But also, you know, doctors do think more and more we're seeing um, in generalized anxiety in this demographic. And then finally, there's an epidemic of loneliness. Um, Cigna did a survey of loneliness, and they found that 80% of Gen Zers have experienced loneliness. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, you can, we all have had that experience. But the elderly said that only 40% of them have experienced chronic loneliness. So we have a situation where young people are actually lonelier than the elderly. How has faith impacted the work that you're doing and faith organizations and faith leaders in particular? Faith leaders are critical to this movement. When I talk about the SAGE, I have three really interesting people that I profile. Uh, The first is Sally Bingham, who is the creator of Interfaith Power and Light. She grew up as an Episcopalian and kept wondering, you know, why wasn't she hearing about the importance of taking it? taking care of nature as as part of a faith-based movement. And her um, minister actually suggested that she consider seminary. And so she took some time and she felt called to study seminary, but she didn't realize you needed a college education in order to go to seminary. So at in her 40s, she went back to college and then um, went to seminary and then started this movement, Interfaith Power and Light. There's also, uh, I also talk about Reverend Gerald Durley, who uh, is a civil rights leader in Atlanta and also a minister. And his awakening from civil rights and the connection between civil rights and equity and compassion and the importance and intersection of climate change and the fact that BIPOC communities will be harmed the most. Dr. Durley talks about seeing how important it is from from an equity and spiritual connection to get involved. And then also I have Dr. Mark Hyman, who's a Buddhist, and talks about his experience of connecting his faith with being an important steward of the earth. There's an exercise in the book where it's 2050 and you're the ancestor and you're sitting with a young person that you're related to and what are they going to thank you for and what are they going to wish you had known? I think it's this idea of faith. It's this idea of of um, supporting this gorgeous earth that's been created. It's also rooted in compassion, not only compassion for the here and now and the people who need the most support, but it's also about this intergenerational partnership that we need to develop and we need to honor. Heather White is a nationally recognized conservation and environmental policy expert. She's a frequent spokesperson in national media and at conferences on climate, energy, and conservation issues. White is the author of One Green Thing, Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet. You can find out more about her work at onegreenthing.org. We'll have a link on our website. When we come back, producer Kimberly Winston talks with author and scientist Katie Walker-Anthony about her spiritual journey and its impact on her work. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. 